to this session of the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. We welcome you all on this beautiful fall day. We're finally getting our summer, and uh, we're, we're pleased to see that. <laughs> I'm Bob Campbell, and I'll be your moderator for the day for this uh, very interesting topic. Uh, just a reminder to you all that uh, lunch is $10. So we want someone at the table to uh, count the number of people there, multiply by 10, and that's how much money should be in the basket. And someone will be around uh, during the uh, session to, uh, to collect that, that money. Um, if you have cell phones with all those uh, wonderful sounds and so on, turn them off, please. Uh, we want to uh, have a good meeting here. Uh, as you know, we are a nonprofit organization, and uh, we rely on uh, donations to uh, keep our keep moving forward. And uh, there are memberships available uh, at the table outside. Uh, we want to thank our partners, uh, the University of Lethbridge, who uh, help us in this endeavor, particularly with the uh, publicity and so on, and we're grateful for that. And we also uh, are grateful to uh, Country Kitchen Catering for preparing the fine lunches that we experience uh, every day. So uh, our speaker today is going to talk to us for about uh, 25 minutes or so. Uh, then we're going to break for lunch, and then there will be a, a question period. I think all of you are quite familiar with the format that we, we follow uh, on these sessions. And we do remind you that uh, these sessions are uh, recorded as well, and you can uh, get them on our website. So with no further ado, we'll get to the uh, topic, Public Land for the Taking, a Disturbing Prairie Tale. Now, this has been an interesting topic, and I'm sure those of you who have been following uh, the news on this, uh, this particular issue that precipitated this presentation has uh, had an interesting life. Uh, but the issues still remain, uh, even though the uh, proponent in purchasing the land uh, that was uh, the center of the controversy has uh, backed out at this point, uh, the issues are still the same. Uh, the... Uh, 7,000-year-old remnants of native uh, prairie plants uh, are a very valuable resource and uh, part of the diversity, biodiversity, of uh, southern Alberta. And those lands uh, are shrinking all the time. And there's a real, uh, a real issue around this whole uh, topic of uh, land use uh, here in Alberta. Our speaker today is uh, going to outline some of the uh, the laws and policies regarding public land and land sales, and uh, look at explore some of the uh, themes uh, and issues uh, related to this this whole area. Uh, the recent the storm over this uh, recent application uh, to the Minister of Sustainable Resource Development uh, would have seen 25 sections of land, uh, native prairie land, uh, near Bow Island turned into potato fields. And so that was the issue. However, it is part of a bigger issue around land use in this province. Our speaker today, Cheryl Bradley, a lot of you know her. She's been involved with the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs for a number of years, is a professional biologist and eminently qualified to speak on this topic. Uh, she's worked in conservation biology and development for environmental law and policy for three decades. She's a long-standing and active member of the Alberta Prairie Conservation Forum, the Alberta Native Plant Council, the Southern Alberta Group for the Environment, 
the urban team for the Old Man uh, Watershed Council, and she's been on the board of the Environmental Law Center and is a founding member of Water Matters. Uh, Cheryl has received several awards, and she is well-known in the environmental world uh, for her dedication and passion around these issues. So, ladies and gentlemen, join me in welcoming Cheryl Bradley. Can you hear me? I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here at the Council on Public Affairs as a speaker today and to speak to you about a matter that I uh, think is really needing public debate. Uh, it's of, of great public interest. And I would like to take this opportunity to also to... Um, to thank the organizers of the session. I know from experience how much dedication and uh, hard work is involved in uh, keeping SACPAW on the road. And so um, to Knud, the chair, and uh, Lisa, uh, the assistant, and all the members of the current board of SACPAW, thank you very much for your, your work. I've called this presentation Public Land for the Taking, a disturbing tale. Um, and I, I, I use the word taking because it's sort of uh, something like the pickings, easy pickings. Um, and it, it also means that you impose restrictions on the use of land uh, for which the owner must be compensated. I want to talk about what native prairie is and how much remains. I want to talk about the value of native prairie, um, how our, na our public lands are stewarded uh, currently. I want to talk about uh, law policy and practice around the sale of public lands. And then I think I'll focus on what I call the disturbing tale about the uh, application to sell 25 sections of public land and turn Native Prairie into potato fields. And then I hope to end on a bit of a note, of positive note of uh, hope and things that are progressing that may see things dealt with differently in the future. Prairie is uh, defined by deep-rooted grasses and other drought-resistant vegetation. I don't think I need to explain to many of you here what native prairie is because it's part of our home. Uh, we don't see much of it around Lethbridge, um, but all of us have seen at some point in our travels, I'm sure, expanses of grasslands uh, in this semi-arid environment that is southern Alberta. Prairie also includes um, several shrublands and woodlands in the valleys and wetlands. There's abundant wetlands. So prairie is more than just the grasslands. It's, um, it's got an incredible diversity because of differences in where the water flows and ends up in the landscape. And towards the... Um, the northern and western part of uh, 
what we call our grasslands, we start to get trees. And so we, you get this mosaic of grasslands and tree communities and little wetlands. And this was called parkland by the early settlers because it reminded them of very pleasant parks in England where an estate was managed to have this diversity of landscape. The native prairie has occupied southern Alberta for millennia following the retreat of the glaciers some 10,000 years ago. It belongs here, and the communities, uh, the, the plants, and the animals that live in native prairie are adapted to it, and there is probably they could probably show us some things about living in a semi-arid environment if we only knew the questions to ask. 70 to 80% of what was native prairie is now cultivated um, fields and settlement. And in the homesteading area of the 1900s, native prairie was referred to as unimproved land or wasteland. Cultivation, settlement, and industrial development were viewed as improving the land. And I think it takes us a long time to to let go of some of these fundamental ideologies as a society, but we are in in a time of change now as far as our perceptions of Native Prairie go. And part of it is related to how little is left. Much of the native prairie that is left is fragmented and degraded by roads and industrial developments and weed invasion from the disturbances that occur. Uh, The image on the, um, what would it be, the left of your screen, um, is the result of an infill well drilling program in CFB Suffield. And the second image is a wind energy development in a native grassland under private ownership. Uh, Currently, we do not permit wind energy development on public lands, but it is being considered. So generally speaking, when you have uh, uh, developments like this, it fragments or, or cuts up the landscape, and it increases the risk from impact of invasive species. Most of the prairie that remains is dry mixed grass prairie in southeastern Alberta. And I don't have a pointer, but um, if you look towards the Cypress Hills area um, and up towards Medicine Hat and Suffield, you'll see that there are fairly large blocks of native prairie. And this is called our dry mixed grass prairie. And about 40% of that natural region is is, um, native. Um, as you go further north, there's less and less of native prairie because, of course, it, get moist, it gets moister and the soils are more productive. So those are the ones that were cultivated and settled. And so less than one-fifth of our um, mixed grass natural region, subregion and our foothills fescue and northern fescue prairie remain today. And the same is true of our um, parkland areas, which um, are to the... <laughs> yeah, oh, but just to get it, okay. So our parkland areas, which are more to the north and then along the foothills here, that um, less than one-fifth of those regions remain in a native state. 
And when you total the total number of um, uh, area, total amount of area that is native prairie based on air photo interpretation and our grassland vegetation inventory, uh, we're estimating that 20 to 30 percent of native prairie remains, which comprises about 5 percent of the province. And we don't know how much of that has actually got ecological integrity because um, without intensive field work, uh, to determine whether you've got invasion by non-native plant species, we're not quite sure if we've got native plant communities in all of those areas. But about two-thirds of our native prairie is on public land, and less than 1% of it is in uh, protected areas, protected from any further development. Now this is a map of the most environmentally significant blocks of native prairie left based on assessments by uh, biologists and soil scientists and geologists and other um, scientists. The large blocks are few um, and the criteria for saying that this is an environmentally significant area is that it has importance in maintaining biodiversity, in protecting soils, in storing water, and in many carbon capture and other natural processes that are important to our society. And these areas also uh, contain rare, unique species and features that require special management to conserve them. So government and private conservation organizations use this information uh, to help establish priorities for protecting native prairie and determining uh, where additional development may not be a problem. One of the key points I want to make here is that this looks like a whole bunch of islands. And so if you are going to protect biodiversity, we need to think about corridors of native habitat protecting or uh, connecting these various large tracts of native prairie. So native prairie, uh, as I said, occupies about 5% of the provincial land base, and it supports 50% of our rare ecological communities, 40% of our rare vascular plant species, and 70% of our wildlife species, which are legislated at risk by provincial or federal governments, or are assessed as maybe at risk. And there's a term which may, you may have heard, but which is becoming more commonly used um, by managers of native prairie, and it's called uh, ecological goods and services. And it's, it's those um, um, services and goods that the environment provides us all uh, as it is in its native state. And so, if, for example, we've talked about native prairie and its importance for maintaining biodiversity. It's critical habitat for a lot of wildlife, uh, protects watersheds and soil. It's one of the biggest carbon stores on the, pro on the planet. Uh, we also have um, ranching on our native grasslands, and it's sustainable ranching. You don't have to put much inputs into it to get uh, livestock production out of it and uh, healthy food for us all. Um, and our native prairie lands 
provide open spaces for recreation. And they're also, uh, they also provide landscapes that are open and we can see long distances. And so the aesthetics of them is very appealing to us. And it's important for our tourism industry. So we do accommodate economic opportunity on public lands by issuing dispositions that don't lead to ownership. So we have oil and gas leases where a company purchases subsurface rights and it gets a surface lease that allows it to put in a well site and an access road to that site. And the leaseholder would pay an annual fee to government. I think it's about $1,000 a year for a well site lease. And then we have grazing leases where a rancher uh, is able to put his cattle on for a specified time of the year for so many months, and then he um, is assessed a fee uh, by um, government uh, based on the number of animal unit months that he he has. Um, These leases, uh, interestingly enough, are transferred without government involvement. So um, people who hold leases can sell them to other people uh, without government involvement in it, except that they need to notify government that there is a new holder of the lease. And so there is quite a bit of um, uh, value placed on these grazing leases, but the, these values are not, it's not necessarily open public information. Our public rangelands are stewarded by our Sustainable Resource Development Department, and public lands is particularly the branch that does this, the rangeland management branch. And they have, over the last uh, few decades, developed some really good and important tools for ensuring that they're managing well, that they're stewarding our public rangelands. And so we have... uh, tools such as range plant community guides, rangeland health assessment workbooks um, that are used in workshops and field sessions with land hold, land, people who are leasing the land um, or using it for other purposes, for development purposes, to help everyone come to a common understanding of what comprises a healthy landscape. And I, this, this image shows you three levels of health in a, a, a rough fescue grassland. And if we have healthy rangelands that are uh, properly stewarded, we have a sustainable agricultural production and, again, this long list of ecological services that are provided to us. Now, public lands are sold to facilitate agricultural expansion and for certain types of commercial, industrial, and recreational uses. They're sold for public works projects or community needs, and they're also sold to meet the needs of government programs. But as I pointed out, this is a scene from the early 1900s where uh, the people turning the prairie sod into what Native people thought was the wrong way up 
are doing it for economic purposes. They, they believe that they are improving the land and improving their communities. Now, this, this ideology has changed as southern Albertans become more, understand Native Prairie more and its value and become more attached to it. And I, I was chatting with someone the other day, and it, there was an interesting observation made that, that sometimes the sale of public lands seems to pick up when we have ministers from northern Alberta uh, as ministers of sustainable resource development. And it could well be that um, it's because there is a lot of green zone land in the north, and um, these individuals are not attuned to what southern Albertans value in their public lands. This is a um, record of public land sales over the past 14 years that was provided me by, to me by Sustainable Resource Development. And as you can see, um, the average sold is about 7,000 acres a year. And it ranges from 14,000 to about um, down to as low as 3,000 acres that are sold a year. There are recent sales being cons that have been undertaken to the town of Hinton and the municipality of Fort McMurray. Um, and uh, these have, may, have, may be the sales that Mel Knight, the Minister of Sustainable Resource Development, was talking about yesterday in the legislature in Hansard, that he said they're considering sale of thirty to 40,000 acres of public land in northern Alberta to municipalities. So... Sometimes a municipality like Fort McMurray that's growing at a great rate and is surrounded by public land would need land to expand. And so um, there may be large allocations of public land for these kinds of purposes. But for the most part, I'm told, um, most of the sales that we see here are sales for agricultural purposes. There's a distinction as well about tax recovery land, and these figures do not include tax recovery transactions. And I'll just explain a little bit that tax recovery land is public land that at one time was privately owned but was forfeited due to unpaid taxes between the 1920s and the 1940s when, when drought and other factors forced many off the land in southeastern Alberta. And so since then, government has treated tax recovery land as public land, using provincial taxes to maintain and manage it. In 1996, Cabinet confirmed that tax recovery land could be transferred back to a municipality upon request. And so this has been done over the last 10 years or more. A lot of land that many of us considered public land has been transferred back to municipalities for as little as a dollar a parcel. And this is mostly native grassland, and much of it has been sold. So these figures do not include those amounts, and it's very hard to get the amounts of native prairie on tax recovery land that has been privatized. Now that transfer of tax recovery lands occurs with no public consultation and without environmental assessments for the most part.
The process for the sale of public lands, the standard process in a fact, fact sheets of sustainable resource development is this. An application is submitted by a party that holds a disposition on the lands or has the consent of whoever does hold the disposition. The government determines whether the public lands are suitable for sale through usually internal referrals within sustainable resource development and with other government departments that may have an interest. And they assess it based on the impact on resource values and the environment, whether it conforms with land use policies, and the, whether there's private land available that could accommodate the same use. And if they determine that all these criteria are met, then, and that the land is suitable for sale, then it is sold by public auction or tender. And the current holder, disposition holder, the leaseholder, does not have a priority right. So it goes to the highest bidder. Now what's happened in practice is that this process has been used south of Highway 16, but north of Highway 16, um, the current disposition holder can match the highest bid. And this was something I think that Mike Cardinal put in when he was Minister of Sustainable Resource Development. So knowing this, the Bow Island land sale is a rather disturbing tale, or the proposed Bow Island land sale. First of all, the application was for 16,000 acres of public land, which is more than all public land sold in any year in the past 14 years. Secondly, the applicant, SLM Spud Farms, had only recently acquired the grazing lease on some of the lands um, through a land swap. And so it was obvious that this particular individual was setting himself up to be able to purchase these lands. Um, and we are aware of a, a land a sale of four sections of the public land that was made to him in 2003-2004, just south of these lands that are considered this time. And we're also aware of transfers he made, of leases he had in Tabor to get these leases uh, in the Bow Island area. So it was part of a larger plan that had been going on for quite some time. You remember I said that the procedure for sale of public land requires that the current disposition holder consent to, this, to the sale? Well, this applicant did not have the consent of the Bow Island Grazing Reserve on most of the land that was applied for sale. And I, we became aware of this through uh, the media. Uh, uh, articles in the Lethbridge Herald, I think, broke some of this news. As well, there was lots of confusion about whether the land was ta tax recovery land or not. And so uh, we were hearing from some of the MLAs, such as the local MLA for the area, that this was tax recovery land, so it follows a different procedure than the public land sale. But it was not tax recovery land. It is public land, and it's part of a grazing reserve. A part of this was. 
we also had this issue about where were they we going to get all this water to irrigate 25 sections of potatoes. And apparently the Bow River Irrigation District was agreeing to provide the water, this water that it had saved through efficiency improvements, largely attained through public investment. And at the provincial level, conservation organizations are arguing, well, some of this saved water should actually go back to benefit the river. And so we had not had that discussion. And we know that the Lower Bow River, where the water would come from, is already degraded and continuing to degrade. There was not an assessment of the suitability of the lands for irrigation. And the other point is that there are private lands available for potato production. There was no need to acquire public lands to be able to produce more potatoes. So as far as we can determine, uh, there was not a determination of whether the public lands were suitable for sale prior to the sale being brought to the minister for, for decision. If there was an assessment, it was ignored. Because we know, based on the map I showed you earlier, that the lands are within uh, environmentally significant area, an area of national significance. We know there are four, at least four species legally listed are at risk, federally or provincially, that do occur in the area, and that others are expected to occur there, but we don't have adequate survey. We also know that the minister, in his initial uh, statement about this, misrepresented um, conservation land trusts. He said, well, the money that we get from this we'll give to the Nature Conservancy. Well, this caught the Nature Conservancy flat-footed. They hadn't a clue that this was an intent, and I think it would be equivalent to taking money for blood diamonds. You, uh, you kill off a piece of native prairie in one place so you can put a conservation easement on prairie somewhere else. Well, either way, you end up with 25 sections less of native prairie. So, uh, fortunately, this, this angle went nowhere. Uh, the land trusts, conservation land trusts would not touch it. And then there was, it was contrary to standard process because the intent was to sell the land directly to the applicant without public auction or tender. And I think that the, the one of the things that most caught in the craw of the public was the lack of openness, transparency, or transparency or opportunity for public input. So we have a happy ending for the moment. The, the application was withdrawn, uh, but the government did not make a decision. So it could arise again. But even though the public wasn't asked the public resoundingly told elected representatives in this situation that they valued their native prairie and that public land should not be sold without an open, transparent, and fair public process. We can only hope that our elected representatives got the message. Just really quick point, and I won't go into this at length because perhaps we can discuss this in the question period, but We've known for quite some time that our public land law in Alberta is flawed. We don't have any legal uh, means to require public consultation in these situations. And the, uh, Steve Kennett and Monique Ross of the Canadian Institute for Resources Law did a complete review of public land law in 1998 and concluded that um, we really there's a real vacuum in terms of managing our public lands for their ecosystem values and for public interest. 
There are some hopeful signs, I think, on the horizon, and that includes uh, regional plans that are going on under the land use framework. They can uh, state we want these lands to remain native prairie in public hands, and the government is bound by these plans. There are watershed plans currently being done in the uh, Old Man Watershed, uh, the South Saskatchewan, and in the Bow, and these watershed plans could plan be quite specific about how um, re retaining native grasslands. And we also are developing a cumulative effects management system, which would set some thresholds and limits on the amount of use that our prairie lands can, can sustain. So on that note, I'll thank you and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Cheryl. You've given us lots of food for thought, and I'm sure we'll be discussing this as we now proceed to the food part of our session. So we'll reconvene at 1 o'clock.